ಶ್ರೀಹರಿಂ ಪರಮಂದ ಉಪದೇಷ್ಟಾರೀಶ್ವರ ವ್ಯಾಪಕ ಕಾರಣ ತಮ್ಯಹಂ ಸೊ ಎಸ್ಟಿಂಗ್ ಅಪರೋಕ್ಷ ಅನುಭೂತಿ ಅ ಟೆಕ್ಸ್ಟ್ ರಿಟನ್ ಬೈ ಶಂಕರಾಚಾರ್ಯ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಟುಡೇ ಹ್ಯಾಪನ್ಸ್ ಟು ಬಿ ಶಂಕರಾಚಾರ್ಯಸ್ ಬರ್ಡೇ ದಟ್ಸ್ ವೈ ದ ಪಿಕ್ಚರ್ ಇಸ್ ದೇರ್ ಇನ್ ಅಪರೋಕ್ಷಾನುಭೂತಿ ನಾವು ವಿ ಆರ್ ಟುವರ್ಡ್ಸ್ ದ ಟುವರ್ಡ್ಸ್ ದ ಎಂಡ್ ದ ಟೀಚಿಂಗ್ ಹ್ಯಾಸ್ ಬಿನ್ ಗಿವನ್ ಮೆನಿ ಎಕ್ಸಾಂಪಲ್ಸ್ ವೆರ್ ಗಿವನ್ ಹೌ ಟು ಅಬ್ಸಾರ್ಬ್ ದಟ್ ಟೀಚಿಂಗ್ ವೇದಾಂತಿಕ್ ಮೆಡಿಟೇಷನ್ ಹ್ಯಾಸ್ ಬಿನ್ ಸಜೆಸ್ಟೆಡ್ ಇನ್ ಫಿಫ್ಟೀನ್ ಸ್ಟೆಪ್ಸ್ ವಿ ಹ್ಯಾವ್ ಡಿಸ್ಕಸ್ಡ್ ಆಲ್ ಆಫ್ ದ್ಯಾಟ್ ಆಬ್ಸ್ಟಕಲ್ಸ್ ಟು ಮೆಡಿಟೇಷನ್ ಹ್ಯಾವ್ ಬಿನ್ ಔಟ್ಲೈನ್ಡ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ನಾವ್ ಮೂವಿಂಗ್ ಟುವರ್ಡ್ಸ್ ದಿ ಕನ್ಕ್ಲೂಷನ್ there are a few verses where he speaks about the importance of vedantic meditation which was discussed in the last few classes why we should continuously keep ourselves in that now you might ask a question how is it possible to be continuously in vedantic meditation you, um we are busy people we can't con- continuously sit with our eyes closed but this kind of meditation is not that kind of meditation when we talk about meditation immediately the idea you get is somebody sitting in a temple or a buddhist monastery wearing the robes and sitting quietly and peacefully well how long can you do that and how much of that is possible for most people but what we saw here the 15 steps here are to maintain the awareness of brahman that it is one reality inside and outside whether you're sitting quietly in meditation whether you're working or cooking or talking or driving it is one consciousness in which all these experiences are happening to maintain that awareness that i am that consciousness am brahmasmi that is vedantic meditation and it can be done at any time at all times under all circumstances now the importance of that is going to be stressed in a few verses verse number 129 bhava vrittya hi bhavatvam bhava vrittya hi bhavatvam shunya vrittya hi shunyata shunya vrittya hi shunyata brahma vrittya hi purnatvam ಶೂನ್ಯವೃತ್ತಿಂಗ್ಸ್ಟಿಕ್ಯುಲರ್ಟಿಟಿಂಗ್ಸ್ಟಿಕ್ಸ್ಟಿಕ್ಸ್
the movement of the mind is called a vritti literally the sanskrit word vritti means modification of the mind so movement of the mind is called vritti all vrittis have their objects each vritti has its object so when you think of a flower or you're looking at a flower and you say i'm seeing a flower your mind has a vritti about the flower so mind thinks of the flower now whatever you think about a vritti about that comes up in the mind it's like a lake in which different waves are coming up and then subsiding you throw a stone into a lake you'll see ripples going out from the from the place where the stone lands similarly whenever any sense input comes in from the world it's like a stone thrown into the lake of the mind whether you think about a, a pot whether you think about a piece of cloth or you think about the monastery you might think that's a strange list of things you're giving a pot a piece of cloth a monastery i'm actually literally translating from the sanskrit ghatavritti patavritti matavritti so it sounds nice in sanskrit ghata means a pot pata means a piece of cloth matter means this uh, a monastery whatever you think about the mind takes that form that's what he's saying think about the things of the world your mind will dwell on the world you see we may study a lot of vedanta we may be inspired but if you're not alert what will happen is the moment you go back into the world outside you see things around the problems of at at home at work they're all in front of you and your mind automatically runs there it runs there by what i might call default it's a default setting in a computer when you boot up a computer it has a certain setting it it'll keep doing certain things unless you interrupt it i don't know if modern computers do that we used to see that in the old dos computers you could interrupt the booting sequence and then you can change now we have a default sequence which is by habit we have been conditioned to it so the mind keeps running like that by habit it will dwell on things which are attractive it will dwell on things in fact more than things which are attractive it tends to dwell on things which produce anxiety and fear and tension so it will dwell on your worries it has a habit of dwelling on worries and anxieties and fears there is a reason why it does that the mind is a product of our uh, evolutionary heritage it's designed to help you survive in the world so its job is to worry <laughs> to help you to better navigate this world but that's not helpful in your spiritual life that same mind has to be put on uh, if there are issues deal with it but consciously put the mind back on vedantic thought here it works because i am talking about vedanta if you attend to it vedantic thoughts are continuously coming into the mind so vedantic vrittis are coming in the mind but unless this is presented to the mind continuously uh, the mind will go on back into its default settings prevent that bhava vrittyai bhavatam bhava means entity any entity tables chairs people for most things we are indifferent certain things which are attractive to us are fearful for us which causes us um, which causes greed or lust or desire a mind quickly goes to that which causes fear or tension or anxiety our mind quickly goes to that that is bhava vritti 
Then the other thing he says is Shunya Vritya Hi Shunyata. If you keep your mind quiet, once in a while the mind quietens down. Sometimes it falls asleep. Sometimes you are just sitting quietly, not doing anything particular. Sometimes by meditation uh, it can be achieved. A calmness, a peacefulness of mind. In Vedanta also you can do it. Um, yoga, mindfulness meditation, beautiful meditation. For example, connected to the breathing. Breathing in, there is stillness. Breathing out, I rest in stillness. Breathing in, there is silence. Breathing out, I rest in silence. If you do that, mentally tell yourself. Don't say it aloud, mentally tell yourself. Breathing in, note that you are breathing in and bring to your mind stillness. The world outside, physically, mentally, still. And as you breathe out, you tell yourself, I rest in stillness. Then the next breathing in, you note there is silence. Outside, silence. Hear the silence. Speech, silent. Mind, silent. So the silence outside, in between, inside. And breathing out, I rest in silence. If you do that a few cycles, you will find mind becomes so peaceful, so quiet. So that's a good kind of quietness. That's a good kind of peace. And it can be achieved, not very difficult. It will go away also, let me tell you that. <laughs> it doesn't survive contact with the world. But even that is not what is meant by Vedantic meditation here. Even that is not meant. That's a good exercise. Even that is not meant. He says, meant. He says, Shunya Vritya Hi Shunyata. If you quieten your mind, if you make the mind a void, stillness, silence, it will become still and silent for a while. But neither of them is meant here. Thinking about worldly things, desire or anxiety, worries or um, uh, expectations or whatever, not that, not even calmness, not even quietness, not even that. What does he mean? Brahma Vritya Hipurnatvam. All that was taught, studied, understood. Summon it. That I am the witness whenever I think of whether it's a pot or a cloth or, a, or the monastery I'm thinking about. Pata, ghata, ghata, pata, mata. Whether I'm thinking about that or whether the mind is calm and quiet or lazy and silent. In every case, it appears to the one unchanging consciousness. I have read this. I have understood this. I have acknowledged it. Stay there. That consciousness is Purnatvam. Purnatvam means completeness. Purnam, completeness. That is the one reality. Why is it Purnatvam? Because other than that, other than that consciousness, so there is only that consciousness and that which it is aware of. What is it aware of? The world, people, events, body, sensations, perceptions, thoughts, memories. That's what consciousness is aware of, right? All that consciousness is aware of 
is nothing other than the play of consciousness. So there is no second thing other than consciousness. Hence it is full. It is full. Full in the sense there is no second thing apart from it. Advaitam. All that you can hear, smell, taste, touch is you yourself the consciousness. All that you can remember, feel, imagine, desire, hate is you the consciousness. In this way center yourself in that consciousness. That is fullness. There is nothing more beyond that. Having reached that fullness, what is the consequence? You, you are perfectly satisfied. A term was used earlier, akritrimananda, non-artificial joy or bliss. What's an artificial joy or bliss? Where you use a something in the world, a cookie, a nice sunset, a relationship, success in the world, something in the world to generate a flash of pleasure. It might be a flash of pleasure in the case of a cookie or it might be a little long-lasting kind of happiness in case of maybe you were successful, you're making, um, you've earned a degree, gotten a job. Uh, so those things can generate some kind of pleasure that's artificial. That's artificial. It depends on something external. It comes and goes. It is subject to increase and decrease. Note what I said. It depends on something external. The joy which we normally chase in the world, it depends on something external. Some event, some person, something. It is subject to increase and decrease. There can be more, there can be less. It comes and goes. And there are many problems with it. It is habit forming. In the sense that once you get pleasure from something, you repeat it, not so much. Take the second cookie, take the third cookie, nothing at all after that. Take the fourth cookie, you feel sick of it. It's the first thing that you learn in economics class. The law of diminishing marginal utility. <laughs> that everything that you consume gives less and less and less satisfaction. Till it becomes zero and if you push it further, negative. That's a problem. Whereas this one, the source of all joy and bliss, Advaita points that it's all coming from within. And the inexhaustible source is within you. Being a millionaire, being a billionaire, why are you on welfare? Why are you going around the world begging for a, give me a little joy, give me a little pleasure, give me a little happiness? Why? All the joy, the pleasure, the happiness that the world can give you is actually borrowed from you. It's taken from you and given back to you. It's true. That is called Purnatvam. Once one gets a taste of this Purnatvam, what happens in Panchadashi, the Vidyaranya, in the Panchadashi text, he points out, an enlightened person, why is an enlightened person happy? Why is an enlightened person contented without any of these so-called supports of contentment? Maybe the enlightened person doesn't have anybody he can call his own person. Maybe maybe doesn't have money, doesn't have possessions, maybe sick physically. And still yet, how is that person so happy? <coughs> I have seen this in the case of many um, spiritually, I don't know if they're enlightened, spiritually advanced people. Monks who are spiritually advanced. So happy. How? 
because of three things Vidyaranya says in the Panchadashi. Imagine having gotten whatever you could get in human life. What a person can get in human life if you are sure you have gotten everything. There is nothing more to be gotten. Second, because of having done whatever has to be done in life. You are here for a purpose you feel. What am I to do in this life? If you could be sure I have done the, what I was born to do. That is get enlightenment, know my real nature. That's what religion tells us. That's what civilization tells us. You are born to attain this enlightenment. If you feel I have done it. Imagine the peace and contentment. Third, you have known what is to be known. The reality behind this universe. You don't know all the things in an encyclopedia. You're not an encyclopedia. If you want to know details, you have to go to the encyclopedia and open it and find out some details. You have to learn science, art, literature to know details. But you know the reality behind all of this. Brahman, your own nature. You have known what it is to be, what is there to be known. Imagine having done what is to be done, having gotten what is to be gotten, having known what is to be known in life. Imagine the peace, the fullness, Purnatvam of that person. That is continuously available to an enlightened person. That is Purnatvam. That person does not wander the world like a hungry ghost. Trying to grasp this and that, snatch away a little happiness before we are snatched away from the world by the hand of death. No. That person is happy in every circumstance, in life and in death, in meditation and at work, absolutely alone in solitude and in the midst of people, absolutely happy. In disease and health, I'll tell you one thing. Once as a young monk I was very sick, so we have a hospital. The hospital is not just for monks, it's mostly for people in the city of Calcutta. Um, but there is a particular ward in which monks who are sick are admitted. So that particular ward is kept for the monks. I was admitted there and I saw the difference. Yeah. There in that ward, they are most, I was a young person, but everybody else was a sick, old person, dying, most of them are dying. And yet there was a kind of peace and joy there. I saw the contrast, you can feel the vibes. I went to other wards to visit the patients there. There's a kind of heaviness, suffering. You can feel it in the other wards. Here when you come, there's a kind of lightness. In general also, you come there, they're, they're often joking and, and you, you will be shocked. I was very sick and then one of the monks came to visit me and he said, Still alive? We're getting ready to burn you at Belurmat. <laughs> in, when a monk passes away, the body is taken to Belurmat and is cremated there. Still alive. They're getting the wood. He said, the, we are piling up the wood there. And this is not... <laughs> now that's funny there actually. I've seen monks singing there. As darkness falls in evening. Beautiful. I can never forget that. Both of them are dead now, so I can mention it. There's one monk who was paralyzed and lived like that for 14 years. All, except one hand, everything else was paralyzed. So, but there, there are people to take care of him. And he was there in the bed, 
next to the window in that ward. And that ward is quite high on the seventh floor of the building. So outside you can see the lights of the city and also the dark sky. It's mostly dark outside, you can see. And another monk who was admitted there at that time, who was passed away recently, who is a very great scholar, both a master of Advaita Vedanta, Shankaracharya's texts, and also a great devotee, who could sing well and he would dance. <laughs> he was he was very heavily built, so you might think that it will be funny to see such a fat person dancing, but he was actually very graceful. He was very childlike when he danced. And one thing you can never forget is that one evening, as darkness fell in that ward full of sick old people who are dying basically, one paralyzed person who has been in bed for, that was the 12th or the 13th year he was in bed, he died the next year. He couldn't even speak properly. And this monk goes there and speaking to him and then talking about the guru, the spiritual master. And then he sings a song. The song was just, I remember a couple of lines that, O Guru, O spiritual master, darkness surrounds me now. Mm. This is the even, even time of my life. Evening falls upon my life. The darkness comes. Come with me, hold my hand and guide me into the darkness. Mm. I go into the darkness happily with you, my Guru. And he sang that and he danced there. And I can never forget that. The whole room filled with a divine presence. It was incredible. And I just remembered it. It was more than 20 years ago. Now imagine, if even a little cultivation of spirituality can give you that strength and joy in the face of disease and death. After all, you forget the fact that they are monks. Just see that, who are these? These are old men with no family, no money, no particular achievement in terms of worldly life. They are about to die in a matter of few weeks, months. We might say, what right do they have to be so happy? So it is that. that even practice, a little bit of practice, Swalpam apyat asya dharmasya trayate mahato bhayat. Even a little dwelling on the spiritual truth, a little practice of this, it saves you from great fear. fear. That's what it means. Trayate mahato bhayat. It saves you one from great fear. Let's. <laughs> That was a really a great education for me. To be with, I was a new monk, to spend those few weeks there when I was sick, in that ward with monks who were at the end of the life which I have chosen. It's not guaranteed. I saw the difference between two old monks. One was very shaky and afraid, and the other one was serene. Both are dying. And then somebody told me that I've seen, they, they were of the same age, I've seen the, this person who was shaky and a little nervous and that he never really sincerely practiced meditation all his life, how extroverted he was, a good worker, but never inward. So over the years, the two people who joined, maybe joined the order became monk, monks maybe 60 years ago. Over the years, at the beginning they might have been similar. Over the years, their natures diverted.
diverged because one practiced, one stayed with that spiritual consciousness and makes a difference. I could go on, I could fill up this class with stories of the monks I saw, those old dying monks I saw, yes. It works, it works. Brahmavrityahi Purnatvam If you hold on to the Brahmavritti, what is Brahmavritti? Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Tatha Purnatvam Abhyaset So one should practice, one should dwell on Purnatvam, on infinitude, on your real nature, not on the world. Dwell on that as much as possible. Whenever the opportunity comes, whenever you feel a little, even a little indrawn, a little spiritual, little elevated, dwell on that. Purnatvam. I remember as a kid, one of my first memories is going to the monastery. I saw written on the wall um, this Shanti Mantra, well known. Purnamadaha Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachyate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyate. And the translation, in English it was written there. Uh, and uh, I can, it was so vivid, somehow it struck me. I can still bring that scene to my memory now. And that happened when I was eight or nine years old. It says, that Brahman, the ultimate reality is Purnam. Complete, full, infinite. This, what you are experiencing right now, here, right now. Purnam idam, this is also Purnam. That is Purnam. This is Purnam. This Purnam has come from that Purnam. Has emerged or appeared in that Purnam. Realizing the infinitude in this Purnam itself. Realizing the Purnatvam. Here itself if you realize the infinitude, then infinitude alone remains. Purnatvam alone remains. Purnasya Purnamadaya. Here you must recognize, in this experience itself, recognize your, your completeness, your fullness. Don't wait, I have to go to heaven, I have to, I have to attain samadhi. Well, many people think that, yeah, yeah, I am I'm not really concerned about uh, any other kind of belief. I know, I have to practice spiritual disciplines and attain samadhi, then I will be Purnam. No, not even then, here, now. But you must practice. That struck me so much, so powerful. That is infinite. This is infinite. This infinite has appeared in that infinite. Or this infinite has emerged out of that infinite. Recognizing the infinite right here, you remain as the infinite alone. The infinite alone remains. That's Purna Meva Vashishyati. What a beautiful verse. Shanti Mantra. But one must practice. See, one of the, the, the most attractive feature of this kind of direct teaching, this is direct teaching, straight away. The highest truth distilled and given to you straight away. Why it is attractive is because it seems to promise two things. First of all, it seems to be instantaneous. If I get it now, here, I, myself, what could be better than that? Other paths seem to promise 30 years of meditation. 
life after life of uh, spiritual seeking and it's here and now one instantaneous second it seems to promise effortless i am brahman what is it? it doesn't seem to be hard but doing unselfish work uh, sticking to the truth always b- being kind to people um, then um, you know simple living giving time and money and uh, you know energy to the, to helping people meditating morning and evening for decades and decades and praying all of that seems terribly difficult i have no time for it but this is good it doesn't take any time yes and no it's not wrong it is effortless and it is instantaneous but no also it takes in one sense it takes complete and total one pointed dedication that i want it i want it seriously i want it look how easy they have made it you can do this vedantic meditation at all times but you must do it you must dwell upon it not just hear it not just understand it not just take notes or youtube but also to actually dwell upon it purnatvam abhyaset somebody wrote that um, um don't be in a hurry to realize brahman because after you have realized brahman apparently there it's quite boring nothing much to do except eat sleep do some work and watch view endless youtube video- videos that's what you do when you're enlightened <laughs> purnatvam abhyaset very beautiful thing abhyaset means do abhyasa means practice but abhyasa means practice but how what, what is practice of fullness dwelling on your already existing fullness and then next <clears throat> 130 ये वृत्ति जहात्यृत्ति जहात्यख्यां पावनी परा ब्रह्माख्यां पावनी परा वृथते तो जीवती वृथते तो जीवती पशुभरा pashubhishcha samanaraha those who give up this brahma karavritti that i am brahman those who do not dwell upon it those who jahati means discard it those who walk away from it from this most purifying holy of 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 awareness this most holy awareness pavanim param this transcendent holiness those who walk away from it vridhayavate tu jivanti their life is in vain no, further pashuvishcha samanaraha they are the human beings equal to animals so he doesn't mince words here you see traditionally four goals of human life have been spoken about dharma artha kama moksha kama pleasure all kinds of pleasure not that the shastra is telling you that you should ch- chase pleasure but people do chase pleasure that's what we just recognizing yes it's a goal because people want pleasure kama artha artha literally means money it could mean success power riches of all kind wealth all of this is artha all right worldly attainment 
dharma is a wide term morality goodness conventional religion temple going church going kind of religion um, doing social work which is all very good what you call activism now so all of this is good that's why i'm giving a rather stretched uh, interpretation of dharma dharma literally means religion basically or morality literally it is dhri which holds a person together gives integrity to your to your existence dharma uh, dharma just as a as an aside here dhri which holds you together somebody asked a question that this moral laws why do you talk, call them moral laws the law of honesty but they are not laws like the law of gravity is a law if you break it you're going to get hurt you're going to get broken yourself you fall jump off from the um uh, building and i'm going to violate the law of gravity no you're going to get yourself killed but say something like you say law of honesty why is it a law i can tell a lie i can tell a lie i can violate it so the answer is very beautiful you cannot break these moral laws you can only break yourself against these moral laws our inner personality integrity of a personality disintegrates we sink lower in our own estimation first when we break these laws so they are laws and that's how the word dharma has come dhri dhri means to hold together it holds you together together integrity morality beyond all of this is moksha moksha is spiritual liberation it is understood in one one way traditionally in india as freedom from the cycle of birth and death the other three are within the cycle of birth and death kama artha dharma in fact if you follow dharma and give up adharma then you will have a better life better life means you will get more of kama and more of artha if one is wicked one does not follow dharma the consequences are dukkha suffering one gets less of kama and less of artha ultimately so worldly suffering and worldly happiness they depend on dharma so first dharma and on based on that kama and artha but all these three are within the world the cycle of worldliness ultimately one must become mature enough to seek what is the meaning of all of this why do you have to keep repeating this what is the reality what is the purpose of life what is the reality of life give me the truth about this experience why what's going on here that seeking takes you to moksha to freedom and you go beyond the cycle of birth and death you are not born again you do not die again that's one way of understanding moksha the other way suppose someone says that oh that's an indian way of thinking you know hindus and buddhists they think like that but we don't think in this country we don't we are either christians or maybe people who don't believe in religion uh, we don't think about many lives and many births and many deaths we, that doesn't make sense to us in that case moksha has another more philosophical understanding of moksha freedom is freedom from suffering atyantika dukkha nivritti paramananda prapti attainment of the inner bliss the highest bliss and overcoming suffering that's a pretty secular way of putting it you don't have to believe in many lives or few lives no this is moksha now the shastras say this is called parama purushartha vedanta says this is the ultimate goal of human life the others are purushartha that means their goals but they are not goals actually recommended by vedanta the vedanta wants to recommend this goal moksha 
to chase power and pleasure you don't need a uh, sanskrit text to tell you that you have to <laughs> no it comes naturally to human beings it's rather morality dharma which draws a what is called lakshman reka a, a kind of boundary around one's pursuit of of pelf and pleasure this you shall do within the limits of morality and decency not beyond that that's what conventional religion and morality does but beyond all of this is spiritual freedom is the complete overcoming of suffering is the attainment of bliss that is moksha the shastra says parama purushartha that is the ultimate goal of human life and that's what vedanta is about sometimes people say oh if you practice all of that i'm not going to make a killing on wall street or i'm not going to get the next promotion at at your job well this book is not about about telling you how to get the next promotion at your job or make make a million bucks in on wall street no 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 that is there is there are actually texts to talking about that artha shastra kama shastra dharma shastra there are huge range of discussions uh, in the indian heritage about how do you attain get more pleasure how do you get more wealth how do you uh, get a better more sustainable moral good life be a good citizen yeah. how are can you be a more religious person all those things are discussed how do i live what do i do what do i say how do i behave with people what do i eat whom do i marry all those things are discussed um in details in dharma shastra artha shastra kama shastra that is discussed this is not uh, the subject of aparokshanubhuti what is the subject of aparokshanubhuti moksha and vedanta says those three are natural they will come and go <laughs> what distinguishes ultimately human beings a real human being from the non human from the animal kingdom is spiritual pursuit but that is the one thing that is possible in human life that is what human life is meant for for enlightenment for liberation you say no that's only meant for the buddha no that's meant for every one of us and we shall come to that in some life or the other better for you come to it in this life that i too have to become a buddha that's that that's the purpose of human life as long as we don't think that then you are, for you the other three goals are there dharma artha kama and you go on till you get bored of it till you get sick of it till you want to ask the big questions and pursue the big questions otherwise there is no difference between animals and human beings vrithaiva jeevanti they live in vain made a million bucks became the prime minister or president won a nobel prize what do you mean live in vain in that sense not live in vain in a worldly sense quite fulfilled quite fulfilled we are not denying that but for ultimately for from the point of view of moksha that was all in vain unless one gets spiritual uh, enlightenment unless one advances spiritually at least everything else remains in vain hmm. sri ramakrishna put it this way zeros if you line them up one after another still the value is zero put a one every zero gets a value put spirituality at the center of your life moksha as the ultimate goal of your life everything else dharma artha kama everything will get get uh, get value will be worthwhile 
take away the core idea, the, the core pursuit of spirituality, everything becomes empty after some time. It leads to hollowness. Death is coming. It will wipe out everything that we have done in this life. We are gone. World forgets very fast. And we also forget slowly over time. What was the point of that? Unless it gave me something lasting. This Purnatvam is lasting. It doesn't go away. I have seen people in old age, in sickness, in loneliness, completely happy. And I have seen people rich, successful, surrounded by admirers, a um, lot of things to look forward to, shaky, uneasy, depressed, subject to depression, frustration, angry, irritable. Why? Yehi vrittim jahatyenam who give up this pursuit of Brahmakara vritti. Having studied it, having understood to some extent, why will you not dwell upon it? It's a great, great opportunity that we must not pass up. Yes. So, uh, Swamiji, here we are trying to uh, dwell upon the Nirakar Brahman. Yes. Uh, which is the formless Brahman. Hmm. And we are starting our spiritual journey by the knowledge of Adhra. Yes. Don't you think it would be easier to get into this by the use of some like the, the Bhakti path? Like yes. All right. The, uh, that's the question. That we have to start. We are starting here. We're talking about when you talk about dwelling on that purnatvam, the completeness. You're talking about dwelling on nirguna Brahman, the attributeless Brahman, the ultimate absolute. But isn't that difficult? Wouldn't it be easier? We're starting here with Advaita. Wouldn't it be easier to start with the bhakti path? Remember, this is a text of Advaita Vedanta. So we are teaching that here. The approach always in Vedanta is to tell you the truth, unvarnished, ungarnished, the naked truth, straight, put it before you. And then the Vedanta teacher will look at you carefully. Working? Not working? <laughs> Alright. Doesn't work for you? Okay, we'll step it down a little bit. Turn it down a notch. Look at the Gita. At the very beginning, in the second chapter when Krishna starts speaking, almost at the beginning he tells the highest truth of Vedanta. Nasato vidyate bhavo, na bhavo vidyate sadaha. This world of appearances has no existence. It never came into existence. And Brahman never goes out of existence. You are that Brahman. Finished. Then why, why 18 chapters? Why all those chapters which came afterwards? Arjuna had questions. And he had doubts and Krishna also gave a wealth of other detail. Taught him how to meditate, taught him bhakti, taught him the basic, uh, the, the foundations of morality, even down to food and exercise. Even down to the, the asurisampad, the evil tendencies. Identified them, these are the things we have to watch out for. So all of that was given. And then again in the 18th chapter, Krishna goes back to the highest teaching. And he, of course the highest teaching is scattered in and throughout entire Gita. So after this we'll go back to the Gita. Which is, Gita is more of a complete book. Sri Ramakrishna used to say there's no book like the Gita. It's a very good book, he used to say. It's a complete book. So it answers many, many questions. And it gives everybody access to it. 
Shankaracharya, that way, is a bit of a, should I say it, spiritual snob? No. <laughs> he starts and he maintains a very high standard. The ultimate truth, the final truth about you, who you are, again and again and again and again, hammering, holding you to it. I'll say this much. What this talks about is the truth. You see, what about other things, all the practices, bhakti and karma yoga and meditation, that is the truth plus something else to make it easy for us. It is Satchidananda, but with a name and form. It could be Krishna, it could be Kali, it could be Vishnu or Christ or whatever you, way, way you want to think about it. They are all in the realm of what is understood in Vedanta as Bhava. Bhava means you add something to it. The inexpressed truth, to express it, you must add something to it. What you add to it is in the realm of Maya. It's not ultimately real. You're trying to objectify the unobjectifiable. The pure subject is trying to objectify. You can objectify, but then you must give a name. Krishna, Rama, Shiva. Or, and you must give a form. And you may have a story. And you have mantras. And you have practices. Are they good? They are very good. I practice them. They have no contradiction at all with this truth. This truth is so beautiful. Practice as much bhakti as you want. It will only help you. It will not harm you. Practice as much meditation as you want. It will only help you. It will not harm you. Do as much good to the world as you can. It will only help you. It will not harm you. Build your life on the rock-solid foundation of a moral life, an unselfish life, a disciplined life. It will only help you. All of these are the solid foundation for this Vedanta. You must do it. Without those things, this is very loose. So those things have no contradiction with Vedanta. And indeed, then why they, what does the Vedanta do right now for us? If right now for us I have to do more of Karma Yoga and Bhakti Yoga, Vedanta gives you the security, the foundation, the, uh, the heaven of peace. Sri Ramakrishna said, Tie the knowledge of Vedanta to the hem of your cloth and do whatever you like. In Bengali he said that. Adoito gayan achole vede jaichitai karo. Hem of your cloth means in rural India, women sometimes they wouldn't carry purses. So they would tie the keys of the household to the hem of their saris. Like that, they would keep it there. So that's securely tightened. So everything is in your hands, you know. Everything in the house, you have the keys to everything. Advaita, you tie to the hem of your cloth. Then go about your business. Want to perform rituals? Do it to the fullest extent. I told you about that Swami, well-built Swami who sang that beautiful song in that hospital at that time. He was mostly engaged in bhakti. Very devotional, very sweet-natured. Except if you, unless you call him fat. That he did not like. <laughs> if you called him fat, he would say, Am I fat? It's... Not really. Actually, it's those, uh, um, those dyspeptic skinny fellows, they're jealous of me. That's why they call me fat. But I'm not fat. <laughs> Other than that, he was the sweetest person you can imagine. But so much given to bhakti. He was a master of, of, of uh, Advaita Vedanta. In fact, his translations, Bengali translations of the 
Shankara Bhashya, commentaries of Shankara, are the ones which we are now using in the training center to train novices. So that kind of person, but mostly spend his time in bhakti. There's no problem at all. Or you don't like bhakti, you want to spend your time in doing good to the world, do good to the world. This will give you the strength, the peace to go on doing good to the world. So many of the direct disciples, they engage themselves in such hard work for the welfare of others. Akhandananda, uh, Shivananda, Saradananda, the direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, they spend the rest of their life, the last part of their lives, in working for the welfare of others. They are enlightened. But they are always established in that knowledge of non-duality. So remember, keep this. If it suffices, good for you. If it does not suffice, keep this and do whatever else you feel necessary. See, how can I worship? An immediate question comes. If you know the answer, very good. If you don't, the question is this. You are asking me to keep this as a foundation and then worship God. But then worshipping God is duality. There is Krishna and there I am. I am separate from Krishna and I am worshipping Krishna. And there are the articles of worship which I use, the mantras which I chant. It's all duality. Then how is it non-duality? Can anyone tell me the answer? Yeah. Yes? Brahmar, Pranam, Brahmavi. Yes. That's a direct answer. This, now, he is answering like a classical Vedanta scholar. <laughs> you know what they do? Really, you know what they do? If you ask them a question, they will give you a series of quotations from the Upanishads. Those are the, from the Upanishads and the Gita. So, directly. That's the correct answer. The correct answer is that all this duality appears in non-duality. The reality is non-duality and the experience is duality. The experience of duality can continue with the firm conviction of non-duality. Knowing that an ornament is made of gold, does it prevent you from putting the necklace here and the bracelet here and the ring on your finger? Does it prevent you? No. It's like asking, if it's all gold, then how will I use, how will I know where to put the ornaments? You will know, don't worry. The same non-duality appears as me the worshipper and worshipped, the Lord the worshipped. And it's a beautiful thing. When you know that worshipper and worshipped are the one reality. Alright. Now, those who practice this, they are being praised. In the Shankaracharya, praises the ones who continuously practice this. Yehi vrittim vijananti Yehi vrittim vijananti Gyatvapi vadhayanti ye Gyatvapi vadhayanti ye Tevai satpurusha dhanya Tevai satpurusha dhanya Vandyaste bhuvanatraye Vandyaste bhuvanatraye Blessed indeed are those virtuous persons who first realize this truth and then dwell on it more and more. They develop it more and more. That means they dwell in it more and more. They are respected everywhere. Literally it means they are respected, they are blessed and they are respected in the three worlds. They are, they are praised in the three worlds. I often think the direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, 
Brahmananda, Shivananda, Vivekananda, of course, Turiyananda, Sarada, all of them without exception, all the monastic disciples of Sri Ramakrishna. After Sri Ramakrishna passed away, they did such intense spiritual practice. And yet all of them had enlightenment well before Sri Ramakrishna passed away. He gave it to them. He had the power of giving. Avatar had the power of giving that. So people ask them sometimes. Brahmananda was asked. Shivananda was asked. Sri Ramakrishna gave you everything. So what is this you are doing? They wandered in the forests, in the Himalayan mountains. They stayed in caves. They begged for food and lived for months and months on arms in little huts and caves. And meditated and prayed and, and um, repeated the mantra. Lived in meditation and samadhi. Hmm? Turiyananda. Tremendous austerity. What are they trying to do? If they've already, if they've already got it, they're trying to dwell on it. Their answer was very interesting. Brahmananda and Shivananda both answered the same thing. Yes, he gave it to us. Now we are trying to make it our own. Something that has been revealed to you. Earlier it was said that this should be there. You should be able to summon it at an instant's notice. Not that all the time you're going around, I am Brahman, I am Brahman, I am Brahman. Uh, what would you like to eat? I am Brahman. <laughs> What's your name? I am Brahman. <laughs> no. You are fully active in the world. You're fully engaged in the world. But it should be, it should be so, you should be filled with Brahman so much that whenever there's a problem, suffering, a blow from the world, it immediately summons your Brahman nature that, and it, you don't, you are able to transcend the suffering. You find the peace and joy within. You don't hunger after things from the world. So, to, to take it to that level, this practice is necessary. Those who dwell on, those who have realized it, and those who increase it ever more. Vardhayanti. Vardhayanti means they develop it, they fan the flames. It's a spark given to you by the Guru. Just fan the flames until it's a blazing bonfire. How much um, sadhana they did. Vivekananda also wanted to do that. He never thought about doing, you know, coming to the World Parliament of Religions. By the way, this is the 125th year of Vivekananda's coming to this country, 1893. He went to the Himalayas. He says, my idea was to go and sit in a Himalayan cave and meditate. I could not. I have gone to some of those places. Even now you cannot climb there. It's a little further from um, Almora. There are uh, caves uh, where there are images of Divine Mother and you cannot, there are no roads. Actually, there's one place you have to climb like a mountain climber. He went into those caves and he stayed there. And he says, yet it's as if something drove me out of those caves, that you have to work for the welfare of the world. <laughs> that was Sri Ramakrishna, of course, who had, he said, Vivekananda said later, he had given me over to Kali for to do the Divine Mother's work. But Vivekananda's initial impulse was this thing. And this is what his brother disciples did. How inspiring are the stories of their spiritual practices. Turiyanandaji, living after he went back from the United States, staying uh, near Hardwal, uh, in a place called, uh, there's a place called Nangol. He used to stay there in a little hut. The clothes of his body, on his body had rotted up. He had no change of clothes. And finally, the last piece of cloth fell away. He found a dead body, pulled the rags of that, washed it in a river and put it around his waist. 
Somebody gave him money. He had walked a long way before he realized somebody has given him money. He returned all the way. Actually, it was the the head of the ashram in Hardwar, in Kankal, who had given money to Turiyanji to keep some money because you need it when you're living in by yourself. He walked all the way back to return that money to him. I will not keep any money. At, at times, I will not even go out to beg for my food. Whatever comes by the will of God, I will eat. If not, I'll stay hungry. And day and night. He used to say, at one time in Rishikesh, he said, the whole day would pass in Vedantic study. This is that, that's where I memorized the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita. And I would spend days thinking about those verses. And the whole night would pass in, pass in meditation. To the extent that I stopped sleeping. I didn't feel the need for sleeping. No tiredness at all. And he said, I got scared. And then I started practicing sleeping. After He says, after six days, after six days of practicing sleeping, I got half an hour of sleep one day and I was so happy. I could get back sleep. Now that kind of austerity, what were they trying to do? This, having realized it, they remain immersed in it more and more and more. Totapuri, when he would meditate daily, whole night he would sit in meditation, light a fire and sit there. Once a ghost came down from the banyan tree and came towards him to scare him off. And Totapuri, there's a story there. Totapuri asked, who are you? I'm a Brahma Daitya, um, which is a very high class demon. <laughs> I live in this tree and uh, I know what's going on and I know Ramakrishna too, he said. And later on, Totapuri asked Ramakrishna, but Ramakrishna said, oh yeah, he lives there and <laughs> we talk sometimes. <laughs> Anyhow, he came. Anybody would have been terrified and run for their lives. Totapuri said, all that's good, but I am Brahman and you are Brahman too. Come and sit and meditate on Brahman. And the demon ran away. That's too much for the demon. <laughs> He's not going to sit and meditate. <laughs> the demon disappeared immediately. There's stories like that. Totapuri used to meditate and Sri Ramakrishna asked him, why do you meditate? You are an enlightened person. And Todapuri said, he looked, showed him the brass pot. Unless, unless you polish it every day, it will lose its shine. It's still the brass pot. You still are an enlightened person. It makes no difference to your enlightenment. But if you want to make it bright and always available to you, and you're able to use it to overcome all your problems and sorrows, it works as advertised. Are you able to overcome suffering? Are you filled with bliss? Yes, then it's working as advertised. No? then you need to return it to the company. Now before you return it to the company, meditate on it for some time and try to see. Of course, Sri Ramakrishna had a nice comeback to that. He said, if it was a gold pot, you wouldn't have to polish it every day. <laughs> By which I think he meant the avatara. the avatara. But other Jeevan Muktas, enlightened persons, they do that. They remain immersed in Brahman. Even if you look at the life of the Buddha, very interesting. All enlightened persons also. There is always a movement of engagement with society and withdrawal from society. Even in the daily life. If you look at the routine of the Buddha, he would spend early morning before sunrise, hours in meditation. Beautiful description of him sitting quietly in the, in the, uh, in the, in the forest groves, surrounded by hundreds of meditating monks. And then go out, teach, beg for their food, teach, uh, give his sermons. Again in the afternoon he would withdraw. Again in the evening he would withdraw. Then 132. Yesham vritti samavriddha 
ಅನ್ವೇವರಿಂಗ್ Pakwa means ripened. It has ripened. Come to full bloom. Uh-huh. They have attained to Brahman that eternal being, isness. Sat means existence itself. They have attained to that. So they are the ones you can say who have become Jeevan Mukta, who are enlightened while living. While living itself they are enlightened. Not Neitari, not the others. Who are the others? very interesting words he use uh, uses shabdavadina those who deal with words only those who deal with words i have memorized the entire aparokshanubhuti if you say that that's that's just the words have you realized what it means no then you are not an enlightened person one may have memorized the um, scriptures word and comma and sentence everything but unless one has actually experienced it and stabilized oneself in it one cannot be called um abrahmagyani this is especially important because all these are texts these are teachings is a vast system of philosophy and one can quite well become well versed in this philosophy if you study this think about it you may actually understand it also but unless you dwell upon it unless you make it a living realization you still not enlightened we we want to start by a great great scholar mahamohopadhyay he was the principal of a sanskrit college and all of that he came to teach us now this is his humility what he said was humility he is a very spiritual man i i can I, i could sense that he taught something to us which is the introduction to shankaracharya's brahma sutra bhashya the introduction is called adhyasa bhashya it's an essay written by shankaracharya before he starts the actual explanation of the brahma sutra masterpiece it's shankaracharya reaches heights there so anybody who's seriously interested in vedanta studies that also he came to teach us we were monks and brahmacharis and he taught it without reference to any book so we asked him how is that we are all poring over our books but you are not looking at the book he said oh swami i have taught it more than a thousand times in my lifetime so it's all memorized and then he said something he taught he would teach entirely in sanskrit is more than 80 years old he said look here this is the highest title given to scholars in india mahamahopadhyay i am such and such shastri mahamo shastri is a great scholar mahamahopadhyay the master of all scholars uh, i have mastered these systems of philosophy and he says what about enlightenment brahmakara vritti and he did like this <laughs> there were tears in his eyes no <laughs> but i know he was his genuine spiritual seeker i mean his whole life is dedicated to it. such a simple life whole life is about vedanta but it's it's a sign of a genuine spiritual seeker who's who's humble one swami said put it this way person who is not a knower of brahman claiming to be a knower of brahman disaster <laughs> person who is a knower of brahman not claiming to be a knower of, knower of brahman that's highly recommended 
It's much better to say that you are not enlightened even though you may have got a glimpse. Just say, I am still searching. Other way around is disastrous. So, netare shabdavadina, not the yes. Yes. Uh, how would you advise us to uh, dwell on Vedantic meditation while at work? Like, for example, if you are given an assignment, if hmm. you concentrate on something, you kind of tend to lose sight of the... Yes. The Vedantic ad- approach is a knowledge, an awareness. Your name is Advait, right? Yes. yes. Now when you are working, you are putting your full mind to your work. The knowledge that my name is Advait, that you are not dwelling upon it. You are not thinking about it. But is it ever available to you? Yes, somebody comes and asks, what's your name? So it's Advait. It must be made like that. The work that I am doing, the person who is doing the work, the instrument with which I am doing the work, maybe a computer or something, all of this is an awareness in the one consciousness. See it as a fact. And then do the work. Give, give your whole mind to the work. Jnana has no contradiction with work. Because it does not demand, if you are free from the work, dwell on that one awareness. When you are in the work, before the work, consider all the factors involved in the work. Your colleagues, the instruments, you yourself. These are all what? They are all appearances in Brahman. That verse which he just mentioned in the Gita, Brahma Arpanam Brahmahavi, in 4th chapter 28th verse of Gita, that all the factors involved in work, those who see Brahman in the midst of work like this, attain to Brahman. That's what it said there. Brahma Karma Samadhi. What a powerful thing. Those who attain to Samadhi in Brahman in work. Imagine, not outside work. Not while sitting like this. That also you can do. When you are free, you do that. But you are not free, when you are working, that also can be converted. What is, what is contradictory? Why are you asking this question? Because the model of meditation you have in your mind is Patanjali Yoga. Patanjali Yoga is definitely contradictory to work. There you have to sit. Then you have to close your eyes. Then you have to control your breathing. Then withdraw your senses. Then focus inside and hold that focus until you attain Samadhi. Ashtanga Yoga. Say, I'll do that at office while I'm cooking, while I'm jogging in Central Park. Oh, no, 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 no. So that will not go go with this. That's also useful, but that will not go with this. But the attitude of Jnana has no contradiction with any of the activities that we do in life. That's what Krishna taught Arjuna. In the midst of work, not only is it possible, you must do it. When will you see water? When all the waves in the ocean subside, then only I will concentrate and it is water. When it is, all the waves are coming, what is it? They are waves. No, they are water. That's what Advaita is telling you. Yes. Uh, so I'm, this is my first time here, but I've been following your lectures on YouTube. Yes. Uh, I have a fundamental question about Satchitananda. Yes. Uh, so the purpose of Vedanta is to realize that we are Satchitananda. So, but once we attain that uh, realization, it's almost as if our self dissolves yes. and becomes nothing, right? Hmm. But should I? But if I associate my associate me with you know myself, which is my memories and my emotions and my, which is the physical self, yes. Then I come back from being a Sachidananda to 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 what I am. Yes. But if I define myself as memories, then the moment I become a Satchidananda, I dissolve and I am lost. Mm-hmm. 
right? So the reason I don't want to associate with myself is because that is suffering and that's why I should not associate with myself hmm. and then let myself get dissolved and become Satchilananda hmm. or I don't exist at all in reality and that's why I should not associate myself with, with these Neither. Neither. When the gold necklace thinks of itself as gold, suppose necklace could think of itself as gold, and the necklace thinks of itself as gold, does the form of the necklace disappear? Does it cease being a necklace? No, right? Do you follow me? The necklace form remains. You would still call it a necklace and you would put it on, on your neck. The functionality remains, the name remains, the form remains. Nama, Rupa, Vyavahara continue exactly as they are. Nothing is lost. Your memories will not be lost. You won't be dissolved. Even if you are very soluble in Brahman, you still won't be dissolved. You know what it is like? If you step back, say, say I am a Hindu. How long does it take me to step back from this identity into the identity that, say, I'm an Indian or I'm an American? How long? It's easy. It's easy because both are present. Which is a bigger identity than being a Hindu? Being an American or an Indian? Because Americans can be Hindus, Christians, Muslims, atheists, whatever. Right? So Hindu is a narrow, narrowing down of the identity of being an Indian or American. Indian or American is a wider identity. Now as an Indian, how long does it take me to step back into my identity as a man? Instantaneous, because it's always available. Is it a wider identity? Yes, because Indian, uh, American, um, European, Russian, all, are, all men are that. It's available. Immediately you can step back into that. From my identity as a man, how much effort, how much does it take me to step back into my identity as a human being? Instantaneous. That is a wider identity. It includes all women also. Men and women. From human being to living being. Immediately. From living being to existing being. And a thing which exists. Immediately. Now, when I do that, is my identity as um, Indian or Hindu or anything, is it erased? It's still there, it's available, it's tiny, but it's, it's still available. All these are, wait, all these are con continuously available to you. What you're doing when you do this, when you say I, what does the I refer to? The I refers to me being, I am a Hindu. Push it back, I am an American, I am an Indian. Push it further back, I am a human being. Push it further back, I am a living being. Push it further back, back means wider, more fundamental, more real. It is more real. Being Brahman, Satchidananda is exactly like that. But you have a question? Yeah, so I, I, I get that concept that you can, you can be all these, all these things at the same time. Hmm. But how does that uh, gel with this concept of Advaita and Dvaita? Because what you are saying sounds like Dvaita, like I am Indian and I am, I am, uh, I am a Hindu, is it even, even that, is it Dvaita? Think about it. Aren't you the same person as an Indian and as a, as a human being? 
Are you two persons or same person? It's, it's a new perspective on what you are. It's a wider perspective on what you are. Are there two entities? One human being and one uh, Indian? No. They are one entity. You have changed your perspective on that entity. What Advaita, this is thing thing to be understood. Dvaita and Advaita are not at the same level. Duality and non-duality are not at the same level. Dual, non-duality is the truth in which duality appears, is experienced, disappears. They are not at the same level. The gold and the necklace are not at the same level. Because without the gold the necklace wouldn't exist. But without the necklace, the gold? Yes, they are one entity. But they are not at the same level. The necklace identity is an appearance in the gold reality. Not this duality is an appearance in the non-dual reality. What we are pushing you to do Advaita Vedanta is change your paradigm. Change your perspective. Change your so-called worldview if you want to say. From a dual identity which is dualistic to the identity which is non-dualistic. All your dualistic identities will appear, remain well preserved there. You will see the reality behind all of that. The non-dualistic identity is the reality. The rest are appearances and disappearances. Why? Because these dualistic identities, they cannot exist without that Satchidananda. That Satchidananda can fully exist without those dualistic identities. And it's available to you right now. Not one bit of you will disappear. Don't worry. Nothing will be dissolved. Dissolved is only a philosophical way of putting it. Laya means a philosophical way. Just as you can see if you say, look at this intensely as wood. You can say the altar dissolves back into wood. That means the altar name, form and use become fade away into the background and the wood nature of it comes to the foreground. To your, uh, to your awareness. So bring the non-duality which is always present just now to the foreground. We are, we are simply unconscious of it. All strife, suffering, clashes are at the level of the appearance and disappearance of dualities. At the level of non-duality, there, no, there is no strife at all. We have really run out of time. It's a very good question. Did you see what I wanted to say? It is shifting of the reference of the I to something available, not changing something. Step back from necklace to gold, from wave to water. You have stepped back from appearance to reality, from the small to the real, from the limited to the unlimited, from the changing to the unchanging. Step back from body, mind, individual um, identity to Satchidananda, Aham Brahmasmi. Then continue, that particular body-mind will continue. Every enlightened person, did they not continue? Ramakrishna continued, Vivekananda continued. Did they disappear into thin air? Or did they dissolve into a puddle of water or something? No. That, no, you're right, the language is used. They dissolve into infinity. But a dissolve is not a physical process. Not a chemical process. It's a philosophical understanding which changes. All right, we'll stop here. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat 
ಶ್ರೀರಾಮಕೃಷ್ಣಾರ್ಪಣಮಸ್ತು